Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. David Titley is a retired Rear Admiral and Chief Oceanographer of the U.S. Navy and former NOAA Chief Operating Officer. He's currently the Director of the Center for Solutions to Weather and Climate Risk and a Professor at Meteorology at Penn State University. It is an impressive resume for a well-respected individual and one that I do respect quite heavily. He's involved in raising awareness and challenging the narratives on climate change that we see in the world. David shares with us some of his latest work, successes, and also discusses the greatest hurdles that remain in the policy arena when it comes to climate change action. Thank you for joining the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. David, thank you for joining us, or should I call you Admiral Titley, or what do you prefer? Marshall, you and I have known each other for a long time. Just call me Dave. I thought that works so. Best. Yeah, well, I, and, and, and it's really a great honor to have you on the, the podcast version of Weather Geeks. For those that have followed Weather Geeks along the years, uh, David has been a Dave. I'm going to call him Dave because I do know him. and has been a guest on the TV version of the of the uh, episode. And now we're on the podcast where we can really dive deep into what you've been up to. Now, I know I want to jump right in because I know you recently testified before Congress. What, what was that all about? about. Yeah, thanks, Marshall. It's, it's been certainly a busy, uh, busy few weeks. So last uh, Wednesday afternoon, so that would have been the middle of March uh, 2019, if people are listening to this uh, a little bit in the future, uh, the House Armed Services uh, Committee, and specifically the Readiness Subcommittee, uh, held a hearing on uh, military effectiveness in the face of a changing climate. So there was myself, uh, Sharon Burke, who used to be the Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, for Operational Energy about 10 years ago in the Pentagon, and a gentleman from Heritage. We were the three witnesses, and it was uh, two hours. And I would say it was really quite a constructive hearing. Uh, you really, it was very different, uh, let's say, from four years ago when I testified before Senator Ted Cruz, in which it was, uh, no way. how shall I put it, <laughs> extremely adversarial. Let's put it that no. way. Yeah, uh, well, can you talk about that? Because um, just to give the listeners a bit of a, a sort of a calibration point. So you testified in the House uh, in March, and you testified, I guess, four years ago. Was the leadership of the, of the, the various convenience committees different in terms of the leadership of party affiliations at that time? So in the Senate in 2015, uh, the Republicans were the majority. So Senator Cruz was the uh, was the chair of his uh, particular subcommittee. And as I mentioned, it was uh, very adversarial. Uh, most of the time, the uh, the members uh, for the majority, it was only actually Senator Cruz, there was another Republican just briefly showed up, uh, spent most of their time trying to discredit or disprove uh, basic science, which I'm sure the vast majority of your listeners know has been around for well over a century. It's a little bit like trying to disprove gravity. Uh, fast forward to 
the hearing we had uh, last week, and, and I would have to say it's not only last week's hearing. If, if anybody's been following and, and listening to the uh, House uh, Commerce Committee, the Science Committee, the Energy Committee, to me the most remarkable thing is not what the Democrats are saying but what the Republicans are saying. Now, they're not all jumping up and down and saying, hey, let's go uh, deal with climate as our number one issue. It's not that. But by and large, uh, the Republican leadership, as far as the ranking members of these committees, is saying climate change is real. It is primarily caused by humans, and we need to do something. Well, Dave, uh, but let me jump in. Well, first, why is that shifting from your perspective? I mean, because I'm seeing that from my sort of orbits as well, the places that I'm uh, matriculating in. Uh, is there a shift is it just sort of political savviness given sort of the, the political winds of the moment or has it always been there but they just weren't as uh, able to talk about it because the, the leadership wasn't bringing it forward? I mean, the short answer and a little bit snarky is yes, it's it's kind of all of the above. It, it's, of course, political. I, I remind my science friends because, you know, we in the science community, we like to think we're smart because we can do partial differential equations and write, you know, things with funny symbols on them. I remind my science friends that, you know, those those members of Congress you talk to. They may not have the same degree of science or hard science and physics and physical uh, science education you and I have, Marshall, and and our students, uh, but they sure understand their people, and they probably understand people, frankly, better than most scientists do, most physical scientists. What we're seeing, and and your li- your listeners may may have seen this, but there's a a long running poll done by Yale and George Mason University that is being very consistent for well over a decade in how they poll attitudes of the American people on climate. And I actually wrote an article in the Washington Post uh, in February, and I titled it. Uh, uh, the the end of the beginning, to steal a phrase from Churchill. What we're seeing is for the first time uh, now a majority of Americans believe that climate change is going to impact either them or their families directly and it's going to happen now. So up until now, as, as you know, because you've been working in this uh, space at least as long as I have, many people have said, well, maybe this is happening, but it's kind of distant, uh, maybe the future, I'm not sure, I, you know, it's not today's issue, maybe it affects fuzzy polar bears, that's sad for them, but, you know, it doesn't, what about me? The polling is showing that many more people, I think after the disasters, the weather disasters we've seen in 2017 and 2018, and, you know, we can just go around the country between floods, the wildfires, the the very intense hurricanes, massive freshwater flooding, storm surge, you name it, uh, people are starting to get the message. And I think also, Marshall, something you and I both worked on, that National Academy of Science uh, report on attribution of specific weather events where we stated, and really it wasn't you and me, it was the National Academy of Science stated that we can, in fact, attribute many, not all, but many uh, specific weather events to a changing climate, whether they're more likely or more severe. And I think all of this is coming together. And those politicians do understand their constituents, and they see how the constituents 
are, hey, this is an issue. And they're running. They're running to catch, especially on the center right and the right, they're running to catch that train because uh, they see this is where their constituents are going. And you probably know, I've said for many, many years that Congress will not lead on this issue, but they can be led. They're yeah. being led by their constituents. A- absolutely. And, and I think one of the reasons you bring such credibility to the discussion is uh, given your background uh, in the military. I mean, I'm talking with that Dave Titley, who's the professor of practice in the Department of Meteorology, Penn State University. He's also director for the Center for Solutions to Weather and Climate Risk and is a professor in the School of International Affairs all at Penn State. But before he joined uh, the, the academic or ivory tower, uh, as I said in the introduction, he's a, he's a retired rear admiral in the Navy. Uh, he's the former oceanographer of the U.S. Navy. So he is uh, he knows that world. And this is something. Tell us a little bit about the military's perspective on climate change, not just now, but over the last several years to decades. Well, sure. Thanks, Marshall. I mean, my involvement really in climate started about a decade ago. In fact, almost exactly a decade ago. I was, long story short, but I was asked by the head of the Navy back in 2009 to really take a look at the rapid changes that were then undergoing in the Arctic. The ice was, even a decade ago, was really collapsing from its historic levels. and I looked at this. I was given about 10 days. Uh, that's in, in military time. That's a lot of time to go figure <laughs> out what's going on. Uh, oh, by the way, move from uh, Mississippi and Louisiana to Washington during those 10 days as well. And uh, I told basically the board of directors of the United States Navy, the C-suite of the U.S. Navy, if you will, uh, that – the Arctic was absolutely changing, but it was really a harbinger of these larger changes to come. And that's why I recommended and the Navy uh, initiated uh, that we start Navy Task Force Climate Change, which I'm very proud to say is still in existence uh, today, a de- long after I retired from the Navy. So the Navy has seen this. And as I testified this past week, it's not just the Navy, it's the Air Force, the Army, the Marines, Coast Guard. This is what we would call in the in the Pentagon, in the security establishment, a readiness issue. And and what I mean by readiness, uh, for, for those of you who, who may not be be part of the the military or, or the security apparatus, that means that can you go and do the job that the nation is asking those armed services to do when it matters the most? And that means in a very far away and austere place, usually when somebody is potentially shooting at you or at least trying to stop you from doing this. So do you have the right equipment? Do you have the right training? Are you physically prepared? Do you have all the support you need? All of that together is readiness. And really the three pieces of climate we think about are if the operating environment is changing, like the ice is melting out of the Arctic, you're going to want very different equipment than, let's say, 20, 30 years ago. And and doesn't that also open up potential new pathways for threats to come into the North American continent? Absolutely. And in fact, in in my testimony, I mentioned that uh, General Scaparati, who is the head of all U.S. uh, military forces in the European theater, was in fact just testifying before the Senate Armed Services Committee uh, very recently, about a week ago, about the increase 
increasing threat, in his view, from Russia and to some degree China up in the Arctic. Russia is remilitarizing the Arctic at, at quite a rapid pace. And the general testified, again, in, in public testimony, anybody can read it and look it up, that he is having to modify and change his plans. And the reason the Russians are able to move so much equipment up into the Arctic regions is because it's warming and it's changing rapidly and it's changing their their trade routes. It's changing. In fact, the Russians just put in uh, restrictions basically to try to keep U.S. and NATO uh, ships out of the northern sea route. We'll see how that plays out. Uh, the Chinese are declaring themselves unilaterally to be a near-Arctic power. Uh, their polar Silk Road basically goes around the northern flank of Russia, just like their Belt and Road Initiative goes through Central Asia around the southern part of Russia. So there are all these geopolitical uh, challenges playing out really in real time. And what I have argued now for a decade is although we may not know the exact geopolitical situation in 10, 15, 20 years, we do see this as an area of greatly increased human activity. And any future president would want options to be able to protect and influence U.S. interest in that region. And that's why we have to be ready now. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with uh, Rear Admiral, retired Rear Admiral David Titley, who's also a PhD and the professor of practice department of meteorology. And he also heads up and is director of a Center for Solutions to Weather and Climate, which, was, which I'm going to want to talk to you in depth about that a bit later in the podcast, particularly given, given some of the things that have been going on recently with weather and climate risk, even as, as we are taping this podcast, tremendous flooding out in uh, Nebraska and the Great Plains. Uh, and that's just indicative of other types of risk. But I, I want to stay on this sort of weather and the military threat for a moment. Uh, I, I know that um, I think where I first met you is a, another National Academy report uh, that you, I believe, in your role or in, in your uh, in, in consultation with your uh, superiors there in the Navy, put forth a study on impacts of climate change on U.S. Navy operations and national security. And you, you've talked about some of those things. Uh, what, what are just some other things that, that, that we can talk about uh, here in the public space that sure. people might not think about as it relates to sort of military readiness or national security? So, th th thanks, Marshall. Yes, you you uh, you met, if I recall correctly, you were actually a member of a National Academy of Study uh, uh uh, board, if you will, I was. Uh, lo looking looking at uh, the the implications of climate change from the Navy. So, I really appreciated that because it's great to have sort of that external look, if you will, from the national academies and kind of get that good housekeeping seal of approval. Now, probably your younger viewers are wondering who good housekeeping is, or <laughs> listeners, right. but but you and I know who we that know is. who it is. We That's know right. who that it's is. It's a magazine. It's, it, Think of it like the sort of modern sort of day, sort of every person's um, every FDA, person's FDA stamp of approval, kind, kind of consumer report. That's right. Back consumer in the report. day. That's right. But any, anyways, uh, so it was great to have that external look. But the other parts, uh, we so we've talked about changes in the operating environment of the Arctic, but just the very. Um, the risks that we have, and 
You, you mentioned this briefly with Nebraska. We're seeing this play out with a very, very strategic Air Force base in, in uh, near Omaha called Offutt Air Force Base right now. But threats to our our infrastructure. So the, the way the, the military, our U.S. military works is we want to play what I call the away game. It's not playing, but we, we want to be over there, wherever over there is to, to try to minimize threats to our security. And if worse comes to worse, as, as it all too frequently, frequently does, uh, to fight them. We don't want to be fighting in the streets of New York and San Francisco. We, if we have to fight, we want to fight far away from, from our home base. But to do that, we need, again, those ready troops, those troops, those soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that can really do anything under very, very hard, hostile conditions. And we train them up at our bases and on our training ranges. And you can kind of just go around the country and take a look at these ranges. And, of course, you know, the, the sort of the two poster childs from last year were Tyndall Air Force Base, where the Air Force had some of their most advanced fighter jets. We call them F-22s. Uh, Camp Lejeune, which is the Marines only have two really big bases, and Camp Lejeune is one of them in North Carolina, both of which were devastated by different hurricanes, uh, Tyndall, of course, by Hurricane Michael and Lejeune by really the flooding, not so much the wind, but the flooding and the freshwater flooding uh, did tremendous damage, billions of dollars of damage on both of these bases. So much damage on Tyndall that the chair of the readiness subcommittee on the House Armed Services Committee publicly said at the end of the hearing I testified at last week, should we rebuild Tyndall? Now, if that doesn't wake up the Air Force, I don't wow. know what wow. will. That wow. was a, you know, and there's a ton of there's a ton of operational reasons to build it back. Of course, there's all the politics of you know bases, but this chairman is saying, "My God, I'm going to spend three, four, five billion dollars to rebuild it." And what happens in the year 2021, 2027? You know, we get another massive hurricane, even higher levels of storm surge because of rising sea levels. He's thinking about that and he's thinking about it publicly. So our threats to our, our bases and, and uh, training ranges is another another huge issue that the military has to deal with. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I, as I recall that report, one of the things that struck me is someone that, you know, was somewhat new to the sort of that world, but, you know, just common sense once it was mentioned is, th- is that, you know, in the case of the U.S. Navy and perhaps Perhaps Marines too. Many of the bases are at or below sea level. Is that right? <laughs> well, well, they're they're at sea level. I, I tell people, you know, it's kind of a navy thing. It's a ship thing. We tend to put our bases at sea level because that's usually where ships are. Uh, we're we're not the Air Force, and we can't all just move to Minot, North Dakota. Although moving to Omaha, Nebraska hasn't hasn't really helped them uh, right now. Sure. So yes, the Navy is going to deal with this. But I'll I'll tell you, Marshall, all of these services have. Uh, vulnerabilities, every service does have significant uh, bases at or near sea level. In the Norfolk area, I would argue that the Langley Air Force Base, just north of the Norfolk Naval Base, may be even more vulnerable to storm surge and sea level than is Norfolk. It's it's very, very low. They're already having to uh, to, to basically build build basically levees and, and things like that for them. Uh, Pretty, but pretty much as you go around uh, the country, you know, we really need to, and, and and we're trying to get the Congress to direct the 
the Pentagon to do this is really take a hard look at the different vulnerabilities from a changing climate on each base. And then you kind of take a look at how valuable what the military use of that base is. And you can imagine you'd sort of get this, uh, you know, two by two kind of matrix, right? You know, military value on one axis and climate vulnerability on the other. And you find the bases that have greatest risk to climate and are of the highest value, you know, and then I can say, hey, if I had a dollar to put into resilience and adaptation, those are the bases I would first do because we're not going to be able to do everything all at once. So we're trying to help the, both the Pentagon and the Congress kind of think through how to manage this, this, this risk because, you know, as you know, uh, we used to be able to just look back in the past 50 years, 100 years and say, well, the past is going to tell us what the future is. And, and if your listeners don't take away anything else but this one point, and that is, is that the future will not be the past for climate. We are, we are changing and we are going to be frankly changing that climate for the rest of everybody's lifetime who is listening to this podcast today. And that's just that's just the reality we're living yeah, in. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because, you know, when I look back at some of my assessment and even talking to people after Hurricane Harvey in uh, Houston a couple of years ago, I talked to people that lived in Houston. They were like, yeah, we flood all of the time. We didn't think it was going to be that bad. I mean, we get floods here in Houston. That's just what Houston does. I said, yeah, but you're basing your assessment, you're basing future actions on the past. I mean, you're on an anomaly event. By its de- definition, it's an anomaly. So you probably haven't seen anything like it before. So I, I think what you're saying is sort of along the same lines is uh, we've got to adjust how we even think about events that we were so used to or oh, we fondly remember growing up it's just a different world it, it it is and and it's just something so hard for all of i mean you know i put myself in this you know we all can think back 30 40 50 years whatever uh but that just is not the climate that we are going to have anymore and really even if we somehow magically went to a you know a zero zero carbon world instantly which of course is not going to happen you know it would still take several decades for for basically the the earth to adjust get the oceans and the atmosphere back in balance so for all practical purposes really for the lifetime of everyone who's living on the earth today we are going to be living in a changing climate and I tell people while we plan for climate, we live in weather. And because that climate is changing, that means the weather and especially the weather extremes we experience, you know, the future will not be like the past. And we need to prepare for that. Then that's a good good setup for the discussion. You, you mentioned this earlier, but you and I were on a, a National Academy of Sciences uh, study panel that put together a report. And I think it, uh, at the time, probably the most definitive look at this new area of, of climate science called attribution. So this this is Weather Geeks, and so I, I like for our, our listeners to really understand some of the terminology that we throw around on the podcast. So, Dave, tell us what attribution is and, and why we as scientists are talking a lot about it today. Sure. So, so again, as as you know, Marshall, and correct me if I if I mess this up. You were on the you were on the committee, and you and uh, all the other committee members. Your primary task was to keep me from screwing up too badly. There. <laughs> oh, you were uh, fine. <laughs> so, but really, for for attribution, what that means is, can we definitively link either an increase in frequency, or increase in severity, or sometimes decrease? in frequency or severity uh, of climate, not to just kind of a regime like floods, but to a specific flood. 
And what I tell people is really, I think, because I'm just a very simple person, I kind of think of this in, a, in a, like a three-legged stool. And the three legs of this attribution stool we have is one is the basic physics and understanding. So, you know, in general terms, that would be like, you know, force equals mass times acceleration or E equals MC squared. Everybody's heard of that. In weather terms, and I'm sure many of your listeners uh, have heard this probably from, from other guests, is that as our atmosphere warms, it holds, and it's not technically holding, but, but it's good enough for this conversation, uh, we can have more water vapor in the atmosphere. So we understand that from a very, very well-known, known for centuries physical property of the atmosphere, warm uh, warm air can can have more water vapor. Shout out to the Clausius-Clapeyron clapper yeah, Clausius clapper equation. Yeah. Exactly. So, so for every degree Celsius, I think it's roughly four, four and a half percent more water vapor. And it turns out that you know it doesn't sound like a lot, but it is. Uh, so that's a that's a that's one leg. Do we understand the physics? The second leg is what do the observations tell us? Is a one in five hundred year event about every one in five hundred years? But when you start seeing you know things that you thought would only happen maybe twice in a millennium happening once in a mortgage, then you say, gee, something is changing and the observations are telling me that the world is changing. And then the third leg is, can we predict it? And what I mean by that is we can actually take some very, very sophisticated simulations of the atmosphere. We, of course, call them weather or climate models, even the weather models. And you can run them with the warmth of today and the greenhouse gas concentrations of today. But you can also, it's really cool in a computer, you can actually set up that exact same weather situation, but you could set it up if it happened, let's say in 1850 or 1900, and greenhouse gases were, you know, 300 parts per million or 280 parts per million, and you just run it, and you run these things a whole bunch of times so you get a nice statistical robust sample, and you can say, hey, look, you know, we really get differences, and the only thing we changed is how much greenhouse gases are in the atmosphere. So those three things, do we understand the basic physics? What do the observations tell us? And can we see this in our predictions? And if the answer is yes to all three, then what the science community says is, yeah, we actually have attribution for that specific event. And we put in, as Marshall knows, we put in the report sort of what we would call best practices. And there's, you know, making sure that we don't all just run to the high profile cases, but we really look at all of these cases so that our sample size is, is not biased for, for whatever reason and a number of other things we put in there. Uh, and we've and I think, you know, I, I you know, not to sound immodest or whatever, but I think that report actually had some influence. And I think it's influenced the way researchers think about this. It's also given uh, people who communicate science, I think, a lot more confidence that when we get, let's say, a Harvey, a Florence, we can say things about that hurricane and not just say, well, you know, in a in a warmer world, we'll probably see stronger storms. But we can really start to say things about a specific storm. And I think the public understands that. And I think this is part of why we're seeing those numbers I referenced earlier the, from these polling data. We're so seeing they, them shift. Well, the question I get about the tr attribution work that uh, that's being done and that we assessed in that report, some people often ask me, why, why do we want to do that? Or why do we want to say that the wildfires in California have a link to climate change? And, and as we talked about in the report, there are actually even efforts to do it rapidly, what's called uh, sort of rapid attribution. And I've gotten the question, why do, why do we want 
to do that so fast? Why do we want to know three weeks later that uh, Florence may have been influenced by climate change? Well, I think I think there's a lot of reasons. I think uh, first, from a from a scientific perspective, you know, I mean, we're just kind of naturally curious, and the more we really understand about how the world is working, uh, I mean, I, I know as a scientist, I you know, I'm always asking why. I'm sure when I was a little kid, my parents probably wish I would stop asking why from uh, from time to time. Uh, but I think from a societal point of view, if we can demonstrate when when things are attributed and when they're not, because not everything is attributable to climate change. It's not the one-size-fits-all answer. But to be able to give those kind of answers to really leadership at any level, whether it's state, local, tribal, federal, uh, private sector, because many people of of good faith, irrespective of their political ideologies, are trying to say, geez, you know, this climate stuff, I'm not quite sure I quite understand this climate stuff, but I sure understood that 20-foot storm surge coming in, or I sure understood those 15 inches of rain falling on me and and devastating my my town. You know, is this is this what you guys mean when you say it's the future? And can you say this storm? And if we can say something and look them in the eye and says, look, this storm was five times more likely in today's climate than it would have been a century ago or twice as likely or 50 percent more intense, I think people understand that. Uh, that's, that's not some statistical abstraction anymore. This is the, oh, my God, this really happened to me. It happened to my constituents. It happened to my family, and it's going to happen again, or it's going to happen more often. And this is, you know, kind of that loading the dice that you and I sometimes talk about. But it's a, it makes it real, and that's, and I think that's a very, very useful uh, societal piece of service that science can do if we can do that and do it in a scientifically credible manner. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And one of the things I love about the podcast format of Weather Geeks is we can really take deeper dives uh, on the TV version, which Dave Titley has been on. Uh, we had about 17 minutes of actual airtime to cram quite a bit in. So we can really dive deep here. So I'm talking with David Titley. He is a professor at Penn State in the School of International Affairs, Department of Meteorology. And he's also the director for the Center for Solutions to Weather and Climate risk. I want to talk about that now. What is this center? How did it spin up and what are you trying to achieve? So, yeah, thank, thanks for, for that. So really the center has been around, I guess, for about five, maybe six years now. Uh, when I left NOAA, the Penn State and Penn State Meteorology had a weather risk program, but they wanted to put a little bit more emphasis on sort of risk in general. It had uh, The program at that point had really been focused, I would say, on commodities markets, energy and, and agricultural commodities. And we were interested at how could we kind of broaden that. And, and in some broader ways, I see weather risk. And when I'm teaching my, my undergraduate students, you know, you're working probably in the private sector. Uh, 
and you're working for a boss who's probably not a meteorologist, and and I hate to say this, but might not even listen to weather geeks religiously. I, I it's hard to believe people like that exist, but I think they do. <laughs> they do. Uh, I I know it's 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 hard to believe, and they may not really care a lot about weather. But they sure care about the impacts and they care about how to either minimize damage if it's going to be sort of a – something that does cause cause damage or potentially causes damage. Or conversely, the other side of that coin is they're interested in how can they use weather to gain an advantage. And I'll give you an example of something we did in the Navy on this. Uh, basically, I think, think probably many of your listeners remember uh, – it was now a few years ago, maybe seven, eight, nine years ago. There was a really big uh, pirate problem off the Somalia coast, yes. off of the Horn of Africa, made the news. There was a movie, of course, Captain Phelps, all this sort of thing. But it was a real issue and it was sucking up a lot of U.S. Navy and allied ship assets. And it's sort of like whack-a-mole. You know, it's a really big ocean. And there are not that many py- pirates, and you're and you're m- spending a lot of lot of money to try to suppress this. Well, one of the things we figured out when we looked at exactly how the pirates worked is pretty much once you got to sea heights more than six feet or winds more than twenty or twenty five knots out there, uh, the rate of successful pirate attacks went way down, and it's because of how the pirates worked. So what we could do is like we could figure out, you know, if you had merchant ships, route them through those, you know, not not devastating seas, but route them in seven, eight, nine, ten foot seas. They're they're big ships, they're gonna be fine, but that keeps them safer. You don't have to spend uh naval assets patrolling those kinds of areas because you're not going to have pirate attacks. Put your naval assets in places where it's calm or use them for something else. That's an example of weather risk and and really not looking at weather sort of in a negative sense or, oh, this is bad, but how can I use weather to get my job done as efficiently as possible? And we try to take a look at, you know, what are some maybe kind of civilian analogs, or if you will, or civilian kind of cases where we can where we can do this. So this is interesting. So you are, I mean, I've, I've seen this type of work before. We've even talked about it from a weather perspective, but not in the way that you have described here. So uh, it's interesting to see that sort of in an academic environment or ivory tower environment, uh, a center like this has stood up. I mean, uh, who, who are the kinds of people who are, I mean, that you can say perhaps that you, you deal with? I mean, is, is it primarily sort of on the government affairs side, policy uh, side, it, businesses? It's been, it's been really kind of an interesting mixture. And of course, you know, I always tell people, you know, if you really love me, then you got to love me with money. A lot of people <laughs> love me, but I'm not sure if the money ever, ever comes back. So there's interest. This is new. You know, people don't always think of weather like this. So we have done some research for some, you know, Fortune, uh, I can just say Fortune 100 companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it's it's been a struggle getting it from the, the R&D guys in those companies loved it. Uh, but then getting the salespeople, the salespeople need a little bit more education. So we sometimes see see that. Uh, government's always interesting. You know, people people come and go, and but we're, we continue to work with them. The insurance industry, we're seeing increasing interest uh, in this. And of course, we still have, I'll call it the, the core commodities groups. So, I mean, one of the really fun things we do up here is when I teach my the capstone weather risk program, mostly, mostly to senior undergraduate students, uh, we actually have private sector mentors uh, that run my lab. 
And so we are simulating trading, let's say, whether it's on the agricultural's commodities or in the wintertime natural gas markets. And we'll have actual natural gas traders uh, really helping my students who are also meteorologists understand how the weather does and sometimes does not affect the markets and how it's sometimes it is the story and how sometimes there are other, other factors driving this. So we're trying to give our students really – uh, the the ability to to see how weather fits sort of into a broader business picture. So, and, and I they're probably my students are sick of me saying this, but it's like you know when you are that one weather person on the staff there, you know how to inject yourself, how to make sure people are thinking about this because nobody else is really thinking about how weather can be either a, a negative but also a positive force, and then how do you leverage that and. From time to time, I get I get notes or emails or something from my former students, and they say they're doing that, and that actually uh, that that's that's nice to see. That's actually nice to see. Yeah, that, I, you know, we may be making a difference. I, I agree. As a, as a fellow academic, I, I I concur with that statement. I want to I want to use the last few minutes of the podcast, David, just talk about the the current public discourse on climate change. <laughs> what is on your mind, what just, I mean, I, I view you as one of the key players and, and, and communicators and scholars from a lot of different perspectives on this topic. So, you know, you, you, you follow the landscape of what's going on. I mean, what do you see going forward? Do you see climate as a big political issue in 2020? Uh, the, the, the public the public sort of numbers, as you've alluded to, have kind of come up. So just give me your view of the landscape going forward. Sure. So, I, I mean, I've, I, you know, who is it? Niels Bohr said that uh, predictions are tough, especially about the future. So, so with that caveat, uh, I, I think he was a, a very smart gentleman, and, and that was just one way he showed it. Uh, but with that caveat, it does seem like climate has really, at this point in time, kind of grabbed the imagination. I mean, we've seen hearings in the House. We've also seen hearings in the Senate. Senator Murkowski had uh, had climate hearings. We're seeing more action really on climate than we have seen in a long time. And I think the uh, the series of extreme weather events have kind of driven, has really driven this home. But at the same time, it's not all, you know, sunny, sunny blue skies, clear in seven kind of conditions here. Uh, probably many of your your listeners know it's been in the in the press that uh, the White House is is kind of running, I don't know, almost like a, a last ditch effort. It reminds me of the Iraqi insurgents there in 2004 uh, to try to still actually sort of deny deny basic climate. So there have been press reports that not in the Office of Science and Technology and Policy, but strangely enough in the National Security Council under a Dr. William Happer, uh, a so-called adversarial review and really trying to undercut the basic pinnings of science. And a lot of people have asked me, well, geez, you know, what's wrong with a red team? And I've been in the military and I've done a lot of red teams. I've also, as an academic, done a lot of peer review. Uh, and, and the analogy I would use is imagine, you know, as we know, NASA's trying to go to Mars, which is a, a great, you know, that'll be super cool. I'll guarantee you NASA's running a lot of red teams. Should we use the moon as a staging base? Should we go straight first? Should we do a six-month mission, a one-year mission? Should there be three people? Should there be seven people? Those are all great things to do red teams. You use red teams for policies. I'll guarantee 
guarantee you NASA is not doing a red team to try to disprove gravity because gravity makes it really hard and really expensive to go to Mars. Um, and <laughs> what right. the National Security Council is trying to do coming at the basic or trying to sort of disprove, if you will, or negate the basic parts of science is they're basically trying to do the climate equivalent of disproving gravity when they should be working on, hey, there's a lot of information on the the impacts of climate change to our security and those different policies would be absolutely suitable to do a red team on. So, so we still see, you know, it, it's ironic that we now have under the previous administration with Obama, we had tremendous support from the White House and the executive branch and Congress was, was very hard to work with. We kind of have the opposite now. Uh, the Congress is shifting and shifting rapidly, but the White House is digging in its heels and, uh, you know, as I say to people, you know, ultimately the ice wins. Uh, it's going to melt and it doesn't care about the politics, but it would sure be nice if we could uh, have a little bit more support or at least not active hostility from the National Security Council and uh, really work on solutions because in naval aviation, we say one of the things that is of no use to you is runway behind you. And we're putting a lot of runway behind us on this issue. Is it, is it, I mean, I mean, there, there are just volumes and volumes of literature and this will probably be the last thing we can talk about but there are volumes and volumes of literature from the military from the national academies the american meteorological society the american geophysical union various think tanks that support and study and analyze military activity that note the impact of climate change on military and national security, yet there, there are efforts to try to have independent or new councils yeah, it, or committees it, standing up. It, Isn't that enough? a slap in the face of, of our, our leaders, our generals well, and admirals? Yeah, it's, it's just crazy. I mean, you have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You have the combatant commanders all talking about this. And I think I've, I've been quoted as saying, you know, to think that, you know, two guys and three beers in the National Security Council are going to overturn 150 years of climate science. It's just crazy. Yeah, it's un unbelievable. Well, uh, you know, this is I'm, I'm, I can talk for days to day <laughs> titly. Um, you know, we we usually have a few notes from the producers, but uh, we had very few notes for this one because I knew that you and I could probably talk for hours. No, neither of us have that <laughs> amount of time. But I, I want to give you an opportunity to at least tell people where they can find you in social media or find your center. Oh, sure. So thanks. So uh, yeah, our. I'm on Twitter. That's probably the easiest place. Uh, D W T I T L E Y, uh, D W Titley, and the solution is C S W C R, Center for Solutions to Weather and Climate Risk. I think I've got that right. And we're on we're on Twitter there. And if you just type Penn State uh, Weather and Climate Risk on Google, that's probably the easiest way our our, uh, our our website comes right up. And we're on Facebook as well for for anybody who wants to uh, wants to follow that. So. Thank Thanks, Marshall. There, there you go. And I want to thank Admiral David Titley for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, and we look forward to watching what you do next. Thanks for coming okay. on, Dave. Thanks so much, Marshall. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for joining us. And thank you all for listening on, to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. See ya. See ya.